one. Well, the world has still gone bloody, buddy, buddy. Even downright cruddy, buddy, buddy. Wish I missed the past, buddy, buddy, but there's still buddy cats. No, don't be naughty, go meet everybody here on buddy cats. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the founder and host of BuddyCast, Nick Sorensen. Welcome to another episode of everybody's favorite show, BuddyCast. I'm your host, Nick Sorensen. Joining me today is a very special buddy. If you've ever seen this show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you know all about it. You know everything. You know, we all love Mr. Rogers because it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. But let me introduce you to my new buddy, Paul. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing fine. The, the camera just shook because my cat just nudged the laptop. So she's smiling uh, around. You'll see me behind in a minute. Nice to be here. And uh, it's a pleasure to visit with you for a while. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, what type of cat? What's that? What's what? what I gotta ask what type of cat. Where where is she? Here she is. There's, this is Chloe. She won't be here long. She's a very shy cat, but there she is. Uh-huh. is she uh, she's my uh, office mate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So, Paul, you've had a long-standing career in television. What sparked your interest? What spiked my interest? What what mm-hmm. got me going? Did you say? Yep. Yeah. Uh, when I was in the Army during the Vietnam era, actually, I used to listen to Barbara Streisand records when I was in my in my tent. And I used to imagine uh, music videos in my head. This is before we had music videos, okay? So, mm-hmm. And when I got out of the service, uh, alive and well, I got in the uh, GI Bill, went to college, University of Maryland. And I majored in radio, television, and film. I just decided, I mean, I just really liked it. And I stayed at it. I've been in public television. I was in public television about 10 years as a young producer in Washington, D.C. And then one day uh, I answered an ad in Broadcasting Magazine that said, wanted television director for children's television program. It's all said. I sent in my credentials. I had 10 years under my belt by then. And lo and behold, it was Family Communications in Pittsburgh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And cut to the chase, I got hired about uh, two weeks later. And that was my huge break. So I was a writer and director there for 10 years and, and became very close friends with Fred Rogers. So That's awesome. And, and that answered my next question. How did you get involved with WKED, or WKED and um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? So. Well, that was with uh, with Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. and and that I just kind of segued into that for you. But mm-hmm. that that's what prompted me. I had ten years in, then ten years with Fred, mm-hmm. and I learned an awful lot about how important it is to look into the camera lens and say there's no one in the world exactly like you, and people can like you just the way you are. It's a very powerful uh, medium of television, and Fred was a real firm believer in. Uh, uh, kids, you know, uh, and 
he didn't invent, he and worked with a, uh, a child psychiatrist and psychologist, Dr. Mark McFarland. And she was like the hidden side of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. She understood the the uh, uh, the uh, scholarly side of it, and for early childhood, this and our prime audience was preschoolers, you know, three to five years old, believe it or not. Although we had a huge audience beyond that, but mm. that was our primary audience. So that everything you ever saw in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, what you saw up front was the interesting stuff, but underneath it was very, uh, really strict. A kind of applications of of childhood uh, of child psychiatry and early childhood development is what the word I'm struggling for. Mm-hmm. So as a writer, I had to follow all those kind of rules. It's not just inventing something that kids would like hardly, because Fred, you could stop me anywhere. I'd just go on and no, on. Keep going, keep Fred, going. Fred believed that that what we're you and I are, are grown ups, you know. And mm-hmm. grown-ups think, well, kids have fun, and that's that's playing and grown-up serious. It's just the opposite. The, the the work of childhood is work. The play, we as adults, okay, you do mm-hmm. a lot of heavy lifting when you're a kid, trying to figure out how the hell the world works, okay? And most adults don't think that, and it makes sense. You know, this little kid running around. But, man, you and I, were, we didn't get born like this. Mm-hmm. We got born as little teeny kids. We had to like figure out the world. So Fred Rogers devoted his his life to figuring, helping children figure out how the world works and to be deadly serious about it. You know, you and I could look at it. We take a shower. We look at the drain and keep soaping up. A four-year-old child looks at the drain and says, "Am I? I'm, the water's going down there. What the hell am I going to go down there too? Mm-hmm. So if I would write a song, you can never go down the drain. Okay. So uh, this is, you can see where this is going. You can take mm-hmm. this anywhere you want with, with toilets, with birds singing. It doesn't matter. The work of childhood is deadly serious. And Fred was deadly serious, but it takes grownups to talk about it. Like me writing a script, like Fred, uh, like the camera operators that, the, the labor of, of adults helping children understand how the world ticks mm-hmm. was really a, a lot of fun. So we did that for 10 years, and, and that was my uh, just a huge opportunity. So mm-hmm. I'll go on and on so about this stuff. Yeah, I'll, go ahead. I'll go put ahead. the um, yeah. no. question One question I had for you is, do you remember your first time meeting Fred? Do you yeah. remember your first encounter with him? What was that oh, like? Oh, my God. Oh my God. Yeah. I drove, I didn't even know where Western Pennsylvania was. I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I took the job and I, and I had to figure out, I got to drive to Western Pennsylvania. I had no idea it was way the hell out the end of the, of the state of Pennsylvania. Because I flew out there. What the hell did I know? So when I left uh, uh, Washington, D.C., my, my wife, late wife at the time, Connie, was selling the house and getting ready to go and stuff. So I drove, I don't know what it took, like eight hours or something. Jeez, I said, man, I'm never going to get there. I finally get there. It's about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I go in, I meet Fred again and say, it's been a long time. I look forward to working with you. This could be terrific. He said, hey, 
uh, it's almost noontime. I'll go for a swim, and I'll say, I'm like, my brains are fried at that time. I said, hell, why not? I used to be a lifeguard. I know how to swim and, and that kind of thing. So <laughs> I get in the car with Fred. Fred drives me to the Pittsburgh Athletic Club, which was this very, it's no longer even, I don't think it's even there anymore, but it was all male. Of course, back then, the gentleman, you know, this is the cats joining in here. The, <laughs> the, the Chloe says she wants to eat dinner. Uh, all all male, okay. So there's no women around. This is this is how things were, and <laughs> so we go down the locker room, and, and I think I have swim trunks or something. Did I'm in the locker room? I notice everybody's changing over these gentlemen. Da 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 da. And then I notice, and this kicked me back to my YMCA days as a kid, that the gentlemen are are not wearing bathing suits. The gentlemen are in the nude, okay? This is a very Greek kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. and including Mr. Rogers and including me in the nude, you know? So I'm like looking straight above and I'm trying to cope with this, this socio-economic socio kind of thing. We go into the swimming pool and, you know, Fred dives in. I'm, I'm still, I'm just looking like from the, the chest up. I'm just, it's too much for my brains. And <clears throat> Fred dives in, and I'm standing there and saying, Well, this is sort of a metaphor for my life because I'm about to like dive into a new world. I'm not going to stitch your clothing on. So, and I dive in and I start swimming. So that was, <laughs> I met Fred in the buff, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. and he swam, he swam every day like clockwork, very routinized man. Uh, and that was the secret to his success, was very disciplined God. And uh, he would weigh himself every morning. And <laughs> he would always weigh the same. He weighed the same his whole life. Like, I don't know what it was, 100, whatever, 42 pounds or something. He wasn't, he was almost, I think, six foot. I'm six four. And Fred was, I think, six, about six foot, I think. But that's how I met Fred, you know, my first day of work. I made a better job interview earlier, but that's swimming the naked with Fred Rogers. God bless him. <laughs> Who else I still can say don't that know what it was like from his chest down, so I don't know. Yeah. What? Who else can say that type of story, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's very emblematic of Fred, completely mm -hmm. relaxed. And he had a, he, he, I, I obviously learned a lot from Fred. And one thing was certainly is he was always, completely interested in human beings you know just fascinated by them no matter who they were <clears throat> and he was able to make you feel comfortable in your own skin he was able to make you feel that you were enough mm -hmm. you know, he was just enchanted with you and uh that's just how he was it's just a great mm -hmm. gift so exactly so he was who he was both on and off the screen it wasn't like this you know exactly. the minute the camera yells cut He's yeah. someone else, like he's someone else or anything like he's that. He's the real deal. The only <laughs> difference would be he would talk just as slowly and just deliberately to you and I, but his obviously his diction and his word choices would be more elevated. But it was always just measured, kind of. It's just who he was, and mm -hmm. I find that you know a lot of guys who kind of the, these burly guys, you know, I tend to become the interlocutor for Fred because they said you know. They would look at Fred and think he's kind of not a feminine or delicate or something like, you know, just too gentle. But they knew their kids loved Fred. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. That's important. So I spent a lot of time saying, look, Fred's a real deal. You know, he's a grandfather, got kids, got two, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would interpret his maleness. And I was sort of this guy been in the army as a sergeant. I was sort of the in-between guy. And and I helped to stand. Um, so, okay, I'm back. Are you? I'm yep. there. Okay. So. Yep. Thank you, Starlink. I'm on Starlink, incidentally. So, which is pretty good. But. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was good for me. It helped a lot of young fathers uh, let their kids watch uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And not feel uncomfortable about it. So, so. Mm -hmm. so I gotta ask. I know this is like picking your favorite child, but what were some of your favorite episodes from from Mister Rogers' Neighborhood? Um. Well, I wrote some episodes, so I'd be foolish not to say that I like the ones that I wrote. You know, because mm -hmm. I was a writer. I had to figure that out, and uh, uh, I think. Well, certainly one of his, and I didn't direct this, some of these, I've, they were, listen, I came in with Fred when he was like on the world stage, okay? Mm -hmm. He'd been on the air for 15 years or so, and he was like Mount Rushmore by then. But like I mentioned earlier, you can never go down the drain kind of song, that his early uh, episodes, uh, I think that certainly... Well, uh, let me try to think. Music with one with Yo-Yo Ma, very world-renowned cellist that I I was directed, but that's it's it was Fred's was he got a, a degree in music from Rollins College in mm -hmm. Florida, so he was a musician. He wrote he wrote lyrics, music, and lyrics, and and uh, we did a uh, a segment with Yo-Yo Ma. Who came into the studio and to uh, I missed Roger. What we had, uh, handyman Negri's or Joe Negri's music store. That was his. You know, we had neighborhood of make believe where he was handyman Negri who fixed things. But mm -hmm. in the other side of Fred, when you know his neighborhood, he had a music show because Joe Negri is a, a very accomplished jazz guitarist, still around. He's, in, he's almost pushing ninety now, doing his thing. But so so. Uh, Winton, or not, I'm confusing with Winton Marsalis, favorite famous trumpeter. But Yo-Yo came in, and he was in, and Fred did a scene with him in the shop, and Yo-Yo's playing the Bach thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a Bach, uh, piece of Bach. So when we were done taping it, I was out just visiting with Yo-Yo, with and I was admiring his uh, cello, which is a, it's a Guarneri cello. And it's about worth about maybe two and a half, three million dollars. Wow. Two and a half, three to three million dollars. Okay. And this is built, this was made in the 1700s. So, and I'm talking with Yo Yo, and I'm admiring. He said, Yo Yo said, pick it up. And I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. So I pick it up by the neck. He said, now, when you do it, be careful. I said, of course I'll be careful. He said, no, no. He said, you'll be surprised when you lift it up. And I, I lifted it up, and my hand just, it went up about twice as far as I thought it would. It would be like you you, you see a five-pound bag of sugar, mm -hmm. and there's nothing in it but air. Okay, so you pick it up by mistake. 
it was so light and, he, and his eyes lit up said sing i said what's the deal and he said that guarnieri knew how much wood to cut away before it stopped being a cello well as he could, he could thin down you know so that the tension of that cello all everything in tension you know the neck the strings the bridge it's like a um, like a controlled explosion waiting to go off. So, and I remember that very vividly with uh, that episode, and that and how f happy Fred was. And I directed it, and I could I have two cameras, and I have a, the two shot of Fred and Yo Yo. But then I had some shots of Yo Yo and the Fritz and, and all that. But I had some shots of Fred listening, and. It's you can watch it online now. You, you do Joe, you by Mr. Rogers. You can see the shots I took of Fred listening, and sometimes it's a two shot, but just the the intense regard that he's giving Yo-Yo's mastery. You know, it's just, it's beautiful to see it, uh, and you can't help but almost feel the same way. So that's one of my very favorite episodes was with Yo-Yo Ma. Wonderful. Great guy. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Another question that just brewed in my mind, what was the writing process like when you were writing an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Yeah, uh, well, it, the secret to Fred's success, and I mentioned her name earlier, was Dr. Margaret McFarlane. She was a, she was of the same caliber as uh, Benjamin Spock and kids and stuff. That, that Margaret uh, was, he consulted with her. So they would decide, you know, what would the topic would be? Margaret would say, well, it needs to be this. Then Fred would figure out a way to make it on television and then make it make-believe and layer it over so the kid didn't wise up to what we were doing. But mm. underneath it was the architecture. So to write a Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood script, you had to have a very firm foundation that nobody knew about, you know, that you built upon it, neighbor to make-believe, you did this, you did that, you did that. But underneath is this very strong uh, structure of, of uh, objectives. I did a series on, believe it or not, economics for children. Right? So, so I, I remember I would consult with, with Margaret, with McFarland. She would talk more general terms and stuff. And she said, so we talked about supply and demand. Okay, you and I know what supply and demand is economically, mm -hmm. right? I have it, da da da, da. She said, if you think about supply, she had a very tiny voice like this. She talked like this. She's just a hilarious woman. So supply and demand, if you consider the child, it's like, to like toilet training. The, the, the child has it and the parent wants it. Okay. <laughs> so I went, oh, my God, that's right. You know, toilet training, I, you know, not poop your pants. You know, you have it. I want it. I want, you know, so supply, demand. So I would. This, I had to do what Fred would do. Okay? I had to take that concept and think supply and demand, water, water retention, holding, you know, going go to the bathroom and that kind of thing. And then I thought about liquid. And then I thought about what if in the neighborhood of make-believe, they wanted to build a swimming pool? What if they wanted to build a swimming pool? And uh, they, but as they dig it, uh, and they do. They dig a swimming pool. They get enough money to dig it, but it springs a leak. Now, spring a leak, wetting your pants. Okay, you should see. 
You layer this down. So springs a leak. What are they going to do? So who builds the swimming pool? Well, I had a character named a beaver. A, a, a beaver. Uh, you know, because beavers build dams. You know, mm -hmm. So I built a script. So you do the Mr. Rogers neighborhood uh, in the house, what we call his interior, where he walks in, he's wearing a tie, and he's Mr. Rogers. Then neighborhood of make-believe is that is the kind of the dream state. So I worked in the neighborhood. I did the neighborhood of make-believe. They dig a hole. They spring a leak. They don't have enough money. They have to borrow from Southland. They fix it, but they don't have enough money. They have enough money to fix the pipes, but not to build a swimming pool. But everybody works together and it all, you know. So, so I took all that from a kid wetting his or her pants, you know, whatever, toilet training. Mm -hmm. Now, take that thought. I'm almost done. That's neighborhood to make believe water control retention and money and that kind of thing. Back in the, in, the Mr. Rogers neighborhood side before the fantasy. We did a segment on how people make money. We shot a, a, a location shoot at the National Mint in Washington, D.C. We did, uh, I think what else? We did a bunch of other things. But uh, Fred Fred did, uh, I'm, I'm remembering what else we did in th that side to set up the economic side of, of it. Oh, yes. If you remember, if you watch a neighbor, he walk in his house, go over to the kitchen, and then out to the side, out back. Okay. Now, when he went into the out back, we had up a sand table, and in it was sand, and Fred builds this little volcano and fills it up with water, just talking about it, and then it springs a leak, and he, he shoves up the sand to keep the leak from coming out. So you follow this. He's controlling the liquid. Right. Mm -hmm. So a five, a four-year-old is, man, this is like, you know, it's, but it's deep down, we're showing them that it's possible to control your bodily functions. Okay. Just like supply and demand. So, so there's a very intricate, interwoven psychology and sensitivity to the challenge of childhood is trying to make sense of the world around you. And Fred did a great job of it. And for me to have to be what we call writing Fredish, that I, mm -hmm. I, I had to be like Fred. But, you know, you can say that I, I channeled it. Yeah, well, I kind of, I had to. And that's the tail of my cat here. So, yeah. uh, that's Chloe. She just, she can't deal with the fact that I'm on, and on the air. So here she, 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 there she is. So uh, that's kind of a, a long answer, but that's the challenge of writing that and pe you know people didn't need to know this the fact that you and i are talking about it i'm just mm -hmm. explaining the architecture of the rogers neighborhood and why so many people including you i'm sure uh, were affected at an early age plus and not only at that primary age we had we flew one time to california to film out there and we're on a regular commercial flight and in the middle of the flight, somewhere over God knows where, Missouri, the whole front end of this airplane was the, uh, I think it was UCLA swim team, okay? All these big, lunky guys come back, and they found out Fred was on the airplane. So I'm back there, you know, somewhere halfway in the back. 
and they come on, it's a Mr. Beautiful Day in the neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. These big kids, you know, singing to Fred. So, and it was really true that we had a huge uh, college age people would watch the show. Not only did it remind them when they were little, but also, and here's very important, that the power of, of uh, the neighborhood was very calming, you know? And Fred would look in the camera, this little, you know, that little camera. And when he would say, there's no one in the world exactly like you, and people can like you just the way you are, that that's, that's a powerful use of the medium that you and I are using right now. Uh, so much so that uh, uh, it, it can be riveting. They did a test with children. <laughs> These were, you know, five, six, seven-year-old kids. They would respond. Here's what they responded to. The commercials, number one, because adults were telling them something. You know, they were listening. Two, uh, news, news shows, because the newscaster would look in the lens. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the power of what we call subjective camera is just astonishing. You know, you can look through the glass and it's one thing to look through the glass, but to be able to have that connection that Fred would. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, you know, he had teleprompters in, in the what we call the interiors. When he was dressed up and being Mr. Rogers, every word was important. They didn't want to mess with it. But he was so such a good writer that you didn't know he was just talking. You sound like he was just talking, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. Every word was on a teleprompter and he's looking through the lens because it was uh, with a mirrored teleprompter lens. And uh, and it worked. He's, now, uh, uh, Neighbor to Make Believe was the fourth wall was up. They almost never looked in the, you know, they didn't look at the camera. It was this way, you know, people talking and this kind of thing. None of this down down the tunnel kind of stuff. But uh, when Fred did it, you know, it worked. And mm-hmm. these are these are you know, they're devices and they can be used for good or ill. And in Fred's case it was used for good. So and I'm glad that I was able as a director to recognize that I wasn't ignorant of the power of that. So that when I directed uh, I, I I just used two cameras, and that in essence, a five-year-old child, I was teaching them film grammar. You have a wide shot, a two-shot, an over-the-shoulder shot, a close-up, a back and forth over the shoulder, and uh, uh, of a film grammar. You and I take it for granted because we're used to it. Mm-hmm. But when you're, you know. A child would go, uh, if it's a wide shot, then a close-up, the child would say, what the hell happened? Where am I now? Okay, It's that simple. So I would I would walk it in. And uh, I'm watching my uh, video feed. I don't know if it's screwy or not. Is this coming through okay or not? Can you tell? A little glitchy, but we're okay. We keep going. You're good. Yeah, it should be. Well, it's all Elon Musk's fault. I have Starlink, which is pretty damn good. So it's a, ah. a very fast uh, upload. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. very good. I live in a, fair, a very, uh, I'm out in the boondocks here in Arizona on a little ranch. So, mm. and I'm very grateful to have Starlink. 
because it's it allows me to have an internet connection that's very fast. Um, nice. I think you're know. back now. I think we're good now. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Good. So, so done. Now talk, talk some more. What's up? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I got to ask, what are your thoughts on the theme song? On the theme song? What? Your theme song? What? No, the uh, Mr. Rogers theme song. Oh, the, yeah. Mr. Won't you be my neighbor? What? What what are my thoughts about it? It's a, yeah. it's a beautiful day. You mean the mm-hmm. well? Well, it's it's pretty self evident, isn't it? I mm-hmm. think what's more important for me uh, when I think about it is the orchestration that's beneath it. Thanks to Johnny Costa, who was the music director for the show. Johnny was um, just instrumental, and Fred could write the melody, but you know I don't know how how musically inclined you are, but it ain't much if you don't got the arranger. And mm-hmm. uh, Johnny Cost was a great arranger. So, yeah, I think his lyrics are very straightforward and uh, 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 explicit and reinforcing. So, and it's a, it's a beautiful na- neighborhood. It's just, uh, you know, it's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Tom Hanks, incidentally, did a terrific job. I was yes. cringing. I didn't say, oh, my God, I don't want to watch this. But because I was around there when that storyline happened with the Esquire writer. Mm. And I remember this guy. And I remember how, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of people come in going, oh, well, here we go again, a kid's show. And every one of them, Fred would turn on a dime, you know. <laughs> they would go in as sort of a kiddie show. they come out as... Uh, you know, true believers in the neighborhood because, you know, Fred was able to reach out to them and make them feel, you know, uh, that they were doing a lot more than what they thought they were doing. And Hanks especially. And here's what he did the best, which sold me within five minutes. That Hanks figured out, number well, two things. One, it's not about Fred Rogers. It's the storyline is this guy's, that's the arc is him not believing Fred and then believing Fred. That's mm-hmm. that. Fred is a, he's a supporting character. Okay. Mr. Rogers is. And so Hanks, he, I don't know how he figured it out, but he understood that the key to, to and Hanks is a very active bop, bop, bop. Yeah. He's, when he's just a regular person, he's like Mr. Extrovert kaboom, you know? Mm-hmm. He understood that there was a stillness to Rogers. And Fred would, Fred could play you like a, like Yo-Yo Ma could play a cello with being quiet. Mm-hmm. He'd wait you out and not in a manipulative way. He was just, and I'll give you a good example. When we, we did a remote, like two years later with Yo-Yo Ma again at his house. I think he lived in New York or something. We would shoot our, our location things before we did everything else. So that was already in the can and edited. So Fred and I talked. We did the interior segment where he comes back in. Da, 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 da. Wasn't that fun, you know, visiting with, with Yo-Yo Ma, blah, 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 that segment. So he and I talked. He said, here's the deal. Johnny Costa can't stand when I'm quiet. He's going to go crazy. I'm going to come in. And I'm gonna I'm gonna bet you that that I can't I'm gonna B 
be able to be quiet for maybe six seconds before Costa goes crazy. I said, okay, what do you want to bet? I said, $10. Okay, $10. I said, I'll bet Costa can handle it because it's just, he said, you'll see. So we roll tape, roll and record, ready to cue Fred, and Johnny plays his little transition music. And the kids in the finished show, they've just seen, but we're doing just a segment. Fred comes through the door, sits down, says, wasn't that wonderful? Listen to that kind of music. Sometimes I think it's, I just want to sit and let's think about how wonderful that sounded. So he sits there. And I have Bobby Vaughn, whose camera, camera two starts zoom, just creeping in like this. <laughs> and I'm counting in my head. And Fred's, I know Fred's counting in his head. And sure enough, ring da da ding, about six seconds in. Costa goes crazy. He can't stand it. He starts going to run. And Fred's face goes. I sure and on and on and on. So I lost a bet. I lost ten bucks. And Costa, and Costa went crazy. He couldn't take it. He could not take the silence. Oh. Fred, Fred could play it. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, buddy. Yep. Well, buddy. I gotta play a quick ad from our sponsors. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You know it. Tonight's BuddyCast has been brought to you by a Compassionate Heart Massage Therapy. Heather and her six other massage therapists are well-trained and can perform any type of service, from deep tissue to relaxation to even showing you how to perform a massage on your canine friend. Heather is a good buddy of mine. She's been on BuddyCast before, so you can check out that episode and see all the services that she has to offer. Or you can learn more by visiting a CompassionateHeart.com. That's CompassionateHeart, H-A-R-T.com. Or by giving her a call at 814-456-5853. Tell my buddy that buddy sent you. Now go be someone's buddy. That was a word from our sponsors, Compassionate Heart Massage Therapy. You did a good job. Thank you. You did a good job. Yeah. Thank you. So anyhow, so that's silence and now we're talking again. But yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So... You and me have some possible mutual buddies here. You know, on the same show have been David Newell and Francois Clemens. Do you have any stories with those guys? With David, especially. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, David was speedy delivery. And that was mm-hmm. David's. He started as a young man. He grew into the role, you know, so he just was running around. So you might remember Purple Panda was a character on yep. the show. And there would be... And, we had a person who who would get into that suit in the studio and do purple panda characters. But there would also be, you know, over a course of a year, you'd have public appearances and, and David would go out as, as uh, speedy delivery and purple panda would go out. And you'd always have to, you know, somebody have to climb in the suit and be purple panda. It's like a mascot, you know, you got to get in mm-hmm. the damn suit, you know, who is big head. So, and David told me the story one time, and it was just uh, it's so David Newell. He could tell a story like Yo-Yo Ma could play a cello. Mm-hmm. So, so David is in this um, Thanksgiving Day parade uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, and he's on the float, and so is Purple Panda. They're waving and stuff, you know. Da-da-da-da-da. Then there's this luncheon at the end of the parade. It's a morning parade. There's a luncheon 
and they're in this auditorium or some kind, maybe it's a hotel, but you know, the heat, if somebody's turned up the heat, okay, it is like stifling hot in this place. And it's November, normally you'd expect it to be kind of cool, but David was, was telling me the story that it was like, it, it was incredibly warm in, uh, in, in this banquet hall. And all these people are gathered in a kind of celebratory. And the mayor of whatever town this was is uh, introducing everybody. Thank you. And before we begin, we want to have an invocation from the reverend so-and-so-and-so. Okay. So the, the, the minister comes up and starts to just say grace before this meal. And David's saying, everybody's you know, bowing their head, including, he said, purple panda sitting next to him. This big stuff, you know. Purple bandas bending down. The prayer's done. Everybody sits up, kind of get started. David looks to his right, and there's purple panda. Not moving. Uh. <laughs> and his his wife, Nan Newell, was being it was inside. Mm -hmm. He had convinced her to be purple panda. She said, I don't want to be in that damn stuff thing. Please. She had fainted because it was so hot. Oh. So he kind of revives her, and, and Purple Panda's head comes up, and you know a little bit of the space, and then he kind of—I mean, can you imagine Purple oh. Panda sitting at a table? How does a big giant mascot eat dinner? I don't think so, but anyhow, that's one of David's many stories, and very uh, accomplished storyteller. Mm -hmm. And you know, he was a public relations director for the neighborhood in his real life so as you will know so and we were, were dear friends and um he was <clears throat> well like anybody who works with the neighborhood is very small staff maybe 10 or 12 people that we represented you know mr roger's neighborhood so you know it was a we weren't a bunch of little tibetan monks walking around you know being disciples to saint fred but we did understand the value and importance of childhood and that you know we like doing it and so and we got paid to do it so and pre pretty good money for the time you know, mm -hmm. so I, and uh, i was very happy to do it i have two daughters gabriel and sarah who are now moms of their own they have children but they grew up with the neighborhood we'd mm -hmm. have thanksgiving dinner at fred's you know and the girls would show up and it was just fun so he was a nice. real deal yeah nice yeah, you, and like I said, and like I said, we also had Francois Clemens on the show. Yeah, Francois. Yeah, great, great mm -hmm. voice. Uh, he he certainly was one of many people who supported Fred's music love of music with mm -hmm. operas. So, and Francois was, and he you know, and real you know the 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 Miss Rogers side. He was the officer Clemens, and then. Mm -hmm. In the neighborhood of make believe, I think he was also Officer Clemens, but mm -hmm. and Francois accomplished, you know, a, a I think it was a tenor, you know, operatic tenor. So yeah, mm -hmm. um, and he, Fred had a great knack of, uh, you know, television itself, television production, film, anything in motion pictures. <clears throat> it's a huge collaborative event. Can you imagine? It's not like I write novels as well. Okay, so that's my sidebar. Mm -hmm. It's just me. That's it. I've got 12 novels under my belt. It's just me. But television production, 
Uh, I'm, you know, I'm with Mr. Roger's Neighborhood and also with uh, Chow Italia, the Italian cooking show. You deal with 25, 30 people at a clip, and that's a collaborative event. You and I are collaborating right now with this, but it, it takes two to tango, takes 25 to make television, takes 125 to do a film. You know, if you ever watch close credits in a film, mm-hmm. give me a break. One of the, I wanted to mention, just thinking about uh, 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 Jan Pascal, who was a set dresser when we were there. Jan went out to Hollywood, I don't know, 20 years ago. Two years ago, she won an Oscar Ooh. For one of the movies, she was a set set a set decoration production design. So the caliber of people who were involved with the neighborhood, you know, just uh, it's been great to see and very satisfying uh, to see them continue their careers mm-hmm. and uh, and also to help younger people come up. So that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing I absolutely loved about. Um about Dr. Clemens was you mentioned earlier when Fred took an issue like, okay, how do we take economics and explain it to a child? How do we take racism and how, like all that and explain it to a child? Like how do we take inclusion and include and explain it to a child? Well, let's invite our friend over for a pool party. You know, it's a hot day today. Let's invite him over. We don't care which friend it is. Let's invite yeah. him over. It's a hot day. Come on in. And yeah. that's how you include people. Like that's the lesson of inclusion. Like that's the lesson. Yeah. That's how you take something as big as racism and yeah. break it down. Well, you know, you learn, uh, well, whether good or bad, what you learn in childhood, you learn, you know, mm-hmm. and if your parents are, are bigoted or if they're, you know, as racial prejudice, you're going to learn it. Mm-hmm. And children don't. It's, it's too simple. You know, it's simplistic waiting for this Starlink to settle down. Yeah, it's too, uh, you know, and Fred would do that. Very, uh, and, and this is true. Ernest Hemingway wrote that human beings have a built-in shockproof bullshit alarm. Okay. My picture froze. Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm back. Yeah. I'm back. I'll have to write Elon Musk and say, "What's going on, Elon? Come on." So, I know. I don't know if you heard that thing. Did you hear that quote from Hemingway or not? Or not? Did I you hear that? Heard like the beginning of it. Yeah. The he said human beings have a built-in shockproof bullshit alarm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the needle goes off instantly. Children, especially, have a very sensitive bullshit alarm. Okay. So mm-hmm. here's one thing they don't like. Set it up, you go, if I talk to you like this, aren't you happy to be here? You hear that? The sing song. Yeah. It's a bullshit alarm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, adults, we make this we're we're so stupid. We forget, you know. I don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I remember when I was a kid. Nah. I look in the mirror. I'm I'm the same person I've been my whole life. And this is, you have to accept that truth in a child, number one. Two, that that kid is working his or her ass off to figure out how the world works. So if you can look at them, and and tr- even though they're little, give them grave regard. I used to do it with my kids. I would kneel down. You ever watch Fred? He's always on his knees. Mm-hmm. He would get down. 
can you imagine you're looking down on a trial? This is ridiculous. I would get down eye to eye with my kids. I said, here's the difference between you and me. I'm number one, I'm six foot four. And I would stand up and say, look how tall I am. Then I come back down to them. I said, two, I have a wallet. In my wallet, I have money. I can buy candy anytime I want. I can drive a car. Okay. Okay. You can't, but that's it. Other than that, you and me, we're just like, we're the same thing. Meaning, and I would, and I'll, here's what, I don't care if they understood, but I knew their bullshit alarm wasn't going off. I knew that because it was the truth. So, and so that much I gave to my kids and, you know, and that's what Fred would do every time he looked in the lens. When he said, there's no one in the world exactly like you, people can like you just the way you are. He was talking to the child. He was talking to you and me. He was talking to anybody because mm-hmm. we we're all equal. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're all coming out of the same thing. You know, you're you and I'm me, but we're also us. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's very important that we are a collective species and that. I think somebody wrote that human beings are shy mammals. You know, they should be reproducing and that's about it. You know, we're shy mammals. <laughs> Instead of the posturing, the this, the that, blah, blah, blah. So it's Wonderful. been fun. You know, it's, it's, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not 25 years old. So I'm, I can speak with some authority. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, as an older man, can I can give my blessing to younger people. So, which is kind of very biblical kind of thing, you know, I bless you, but I'm affirming as an adult that uh, the world actually does work contrary to <laughs> the world works, but you've mm-hmm. got to work, you, got to, you know, but it does work. And, uh, and, and my, one of my quotes is Fred is that, and I mentioned to you earlier that people want to love and be loved, and everything else is commentary, okay? A lot of commentary, a lot of chit-chat, a lot of this, a lot of that, Biden in the Ukraine, cats in my lap, all this kind of stuff, <laughs> life, okay? This is, you know, but it's commentary that people want to love and be loved. And if you can get that that's the baseline, and the children especially, you know, need to be, once they're loved, and they're capable of being loved, then they can love themselves. It's not spontaneous. They have to feel it. It's the cart before the horse. And I've, I've learned that, that you've got to do that first. So that's, a, you know, the obligation I feel to any, well, actually not, not to any kid, but any, any human being. Yeah, they, exactly. Right. Out of me, they get love first. Yeah, I'll do it. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm six, four, you know, I'm happy. What are they going to say? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a nice guy, you know, and but I use that as a, as a very, you know, a happy tool. And Fred did it with children, and I do it with adults, and doing with you. It's just mm-hmm. it works for me. And guess what? I feel good about it, you know. So, bingo. So we yeah. Been- We've been talking all about like lessons that we've learned, you know, whether they be like racism, economics. What's the greatest lesson that you've taken away from Fred? What's the what from Fred? The what? The what? The greatest lesson you've taken away from him. Well, 
certainly what I just said, people want to love and be loved. But the lesson I've taken from him is that um, that uh, I have an obligation to do so, that I have to choose that. I have, I have to choose. It's my choice, you know. And every day, and in different ways, I'm presented with opportunities not to do that. And and that sometimes I'll be okay. Sometimes I'll fail. But that I I keep coming. I come back to my baseline of what I just said. But what Fred taught me was that you're not going to have days when that works for you. Mm-hmm. But but. <laughs> Your baseline is that that is what you know. Just that that because I'm not alone in the human race, somebody else might be nice to me or whatever. But that what I just said about people want love be loved. But I have to choose to do that, and I have to guard my thinking. And Fred guarded his was great. He was a incredibly disciplined human being, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically very disciplined. Because he knew the importance of of uh, trying, to, you know, of uh, staying the course, if you will, which he mm-hmm. did up until the day he died, you know. And uh, he had a not what I would call a very comfortable passing. You know, he had, he had stomach cancer and and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. It was just tough. And uh, but I could always sense in him an obligation to. Uh, represent himself as a fellow human being in the human race, and to model by by uh, by action rather than by words. Of which I've done a lot of words tonight, mm-hmm. but actions are everything. So if you came over here and visited me tomorrow here in Winslow, Arizona, I'd still be the same guy. Okay, I would be on video, but I'd go. Well, you got this guy's like the same guy he was when I was talking to him. You know. And that's the gift we can offer each other is the honesty of being a human being. And tr- tr- and this is tricky. You have to trust that the other human being <laughs> is a human being like you are. It's not, we live in a world where we're presented with alternates and with, you know, winners and losers, et cetera. But, so we have to choose our thoughts. Yeah? So Fred mm-hmm. taught me that. And uh, I, I do it tonight. I'll do it tomorrow morning when I'm shaving. I'm just looking at myself in the mirror, you know. <laughs> but I'll do my best. And then the next day, and the next day, next day. So, that's just, mm-hmm. so. so if Fred were here today, what would you have to say to him? Like if Fred all of a sudden popped up on BuddyCast, what would you yeah. say to him? I would say, Fred... Um, what I learned from you, I'm still practicing it, and that uh, I'm wondering if where you are now, this is kind of a, a sidebar joke, mm-hmm. I wonder if you're not colorblind up there, wherever you are, because he was. Fred could not, he didn't hey, he was completely colorblind, but he couldn't tell certain colors. Really? So, yeah. So, uh, when he would come in and, and re- take off his coat and put on a sweater, it was always a sweater to the left to the right of the empty hangar because he couldn't tell color. Okay. He wasn't pure black and white. I remember one night we used to visit children's hospital. He and I at nighttime, uh, he would drive over there. One night he's driving back in the rainstorm and he's driving in his big Buick and I'm sitting there and he said, tell me what, what, uh, what's the color that 
stoplight up there. And I knew he was colorblind. But I forgot what it's like to be in a car with someone who's colorblind who doesn't know what the hell the damn stuff was. I said, Fred, it's red. Okay, it's your thing. It comes to a stop. I said, would you mind if I drove the rest of the way home? He said, oh, no, I'll be fine. So we get up. We exchange. And I drove. But Fred was colorblind. So I'm hoping wherever he is that he can see all the colors of a, of a rainbow now that mm-hmm. he couldn't when he was here. Mm-hmm. Now, this question just popped into my head, and I know, sure. you know you mentioned he battled stomach cancer. Do you do you remember where you were the day you learned of his passing? Do you remember like what was go- like what was going on that day, that moment? Yeah, I was in New Hampshire. I'd been there. Well, I left the neighborhood in the, in the '90s, and it was like uh-huh. mid '90s and stuff. And I think, yeah, I talked to him about maybe three weeks earlier. So we would talk fairly regularly. He was a very, he talked a lot to his friends on the phone. And yeah, I was in my office in in my house. I had a home office and uh, uh, he was very secretive about, and I don't think he knew. Yeah, I didn't know. Nobody knew in the company. I think two people that he was going through this because for a variety of reasons, obviously when you're the linchpin, you're not going to, you know, you can't do it. And I just, um, I wasn't, and here's what, I wasn't sad or anything because Fred and I were very close. We're both very spiritual and he was a huge, you know, he's an ordained Presbyterian minister, very close relationship with his idea of a power greater than himself and I am too and I just I didn't feel I didn't miss him to be honest because he still Fred he transitioned where he's at and uh, I think that's what I I remember thinking that saying that I just felt closer to him in that moment. I guess it's a way. I've never had anybody ask me that question, so I'm trying to find mm-hmm. a way to respond to you. But and I, I, felt, I felt close to him. Yeah. And I love the positivity of it. You know, it just it came to my mind. I'm like, I wonder, because you ask people, you know how if you ask someone, like, where were you during this? Sure. Like, you Absolutely. know, like, where were you during yeah. this history event? You know? We have these place markers in our lives, mm-hmm. <clears throat> whether it's a, you know, whatever. Yeah, where were you when? When? Where were you mm-hmm. when? And we mark them. And it's interesting that I don't have a real firm moment because I didn't feel any change in our relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, that's weird, but it's true. Yeah. Even right now, I don't feel that any different. That mm-hmm. I was, I was on board with that guy. You know, when I when I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." I remember when he came out of the office, he and I, nobody else knew, but he said, I, we have, he didn't say, I think, he said, we have our new director. I remember he said that. This is long before we closed the deal, <clears throat> but for Fred and I were concerned, it was a done deal. And mm. that, once that moment happened, uh, it, was, it was transformational in my life. 
And mm-hmm. I gave him, I gave him, and I remember thinking I gave I gave him the ten years I was like in my mid thirties maybe, mid forties. I gave him like my best energy, all of my and you know just everything. I gave him, I, and not him, but the the neighborhood as we used to call it. Yeah. And that uh, was worth it, you know. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Now you're frozen. What's going on? There you go. Hello, there you're back. So, yep. Sorry, we're having a few storms here in uh, Erie, so it's been oh, snowing and raining it's, all day. So it's your fault, not mine. Good, good. Yeah, I take full. I take full blame for it. So now I got another question for you. You said earlier you write novels, correct? Yeah. Can you tell yeah. us about those? I've been a writer my whole life. And uh, I've written, I think, 13 novels now. So Wow. You, if you go to paul-lally.com, it's there, you know, my writing. I do alternate history, World War II history. I do straight novel writing. I do, yeah, I love to write. And I'm researching. I've done two trilogies. I did a novel called Ride and that was uh, Amazon published that, Kindle Publishing. So nice. nice. I love to write. I'm still right. I write every morning. I get up at three o'clock and I, I'm researching right now, but getting ready to start my my second novel in this trilogy. So Wow. So buddy, <clears throat> I got two more questions for you to make this an official buddy cast. Sure. The first one is brought to yeah. us by my buddy Jonas Kane at hashtag positivity. He wants to know, in your own words, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? What's it like to be what? Say that again, because it's a little breaking up. What? What does it? Uh, what does it mean to be someone's buddy? Someone's buddy. Well, that you have their, you have their back. You know, that's that simple. That you're with them thick or thin. Yeah. I was in the army. I had a lot of buddies. I was in the army during Vietnam and I had buddies. I lost some guys, good close friends of mine and uh, to be there for them, you know, thick or thin. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's simple. Mm -hmm. The final question I have for you is what we call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. You ready for this one? Yeah, sure. What is your advice to anybody who wants to do what you do and become a writer and a producer, a writer and a director? Yeah. What's my best advice? Mm-hmm. Well, it has, okay. You have to, you need to do two things. One, you have to, you can't help yourself. You have to, you have to do it. You're just, Mm -hmm. you're driven to do it. You have to feel that urge. And two, this is the most important part. You have to think not about being it, but think about, you. not to think uh, of the wish, but from the wish fulfilled. You have to think from it. Meaning, if you want to, and I, I did this from when I started. That when I would write anything, it was as though it was it was as though somebody was paying me to do it, and the stakes were mortal. That I would 
think from it, meaning I've already won the award, I've already written the script, people like it, it's going to be terrific. You have to get to the end of it and then get toward it. Don't think up, because if you think of it, the universe will say, oh, okay, we'll keep making you think of it. But if you think from it, the universe will go, okay, it'll happen for you. And it won't happen for somebody else. Okay? That everybody has a key. If you put a key in a lock, sometimes it'll slip in, but it doesn't turn. Okay? I, I've taught a bunch of uh, television production classes, meaning you're, you're dream what you want to do. But your key will fit in, and it will turn the lock. Okay, so the secret is to make it turn is to think from the wish fulfilled, not of it. Don't think of it. That is like daydream, dude. And you'll you could spend too much energy, you know, drinking beer and and dreaming of it instead of from it. Mm -hmm. You know, put the beer down, pick up the pen, pick up the computer, and think from it. So that's my advice. Anybody who wants to work in, in uh, motion pictures, television production, media production is, you know, it's a fire in your belly. You know, when I, I started off as a cameraman in the television studio, and when you light, when you look through a camera, you have little red lights called a tally light. It means you're on the air. It means it's live. Okay? I remember the first time I'm looking through the lens the monitor and the little red light comes on and I realized that when I was a news show or something that the, the newscaster was in my and I knew that if I moved the camera to the left, the newscaster moves to the left and moves to the right, moves to the right. And I thought I was gonna faint, it was so powerful. <laughs> oh my God, I am in that situation where I'm I am mediating this person's image. That kind of excitement I mean, only a cat. I don't know if anybody gets it, but I got it. I'm like, oh my God, I think I'm going to faint. I literally got buzzed out. And I'm like a normal guy. Okay. I'm not some freak out artist. I'm just me. Mm -hmm. I was so turned on. But it told me, I said, man, you want this, you know, because I can't do anything else. You know, I've had a whole career doing this. I got paid to do it. I have little Emmys floating around. I did all this stuff, you know, and I'm a schmuck. What, what else can I do? I worked at McDonald's. I worked at the post office. I dug ditches. I've done all this stuff, but all I know how to do is what I'm doing. So my advice is, you know, if you love it, it's going to work out. And, you know, like drop me a line at paulmlally01 at gmail.com. I'll do it again. paulmlally01 at gmail.com. You know, stay in touch with me. Let me know what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's my tip. It's a long answer, but that's it. So we love long answers here. Trust me. We've. I'm sorry. Well, blah blah blah. It, but yeah. yeah. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Well, buddy. Okay. Thank you so much for being my a buddy. On buddy cast. And, and before I sign off, I want to thank you for what you're doing, because you're utilizing the media the way it should be. You know, I'm of uh, the dinosaur age. You know, with television and that kind of thing. You are active with your mediating reality and the way it needs to be mediated nowadays. So I think mm -hmm. it's terrific. You stay at it. And uh, if I can help you, let me know. You, Will you do. Know my, you know my Gmail address already. So yep. you stay in touch with me too. Will and do. I wish those who are watching it, you know, just to, you know, follow their dreams because it works. And mm -hmm. like that guy over there 
Mr. Rogers taught me that. I'll turn the camera so you can see. Where is that boy? There he is. And right above him is an, is an Emmy Award. So it all works. Okay. Mm-hmm. So are we set? Is that enough or anything else you'd yep. like? That's perfect. Stick around for a minute, though. We'll chat afterwards. But Okay. Yeah. Right. For my buddies out there, this is my buddy, Paul Lally. Please check out his works. Check out his website. It's in the comments. I'm yeah. your host, Nick Sorensen. Be like Mr. Rogers and go be someone's buddy today. That's what I want you to promise me, Paul, before we sign off on this episode. Okay. Whatever yeah. you do today, tomorrow, next week, next month, or even next year, please go be someone's buddy. We'll catch you all next time here on everybody's favorite show, Buddy Cast. All right. Well, the days are going fast, buddy, buddy, we've got to make them last. Buddy, buddy, before they've all gone past, buddy, buddy, tune in to Buddy Cast. Don't feel none it can make it, buddy, here on Buddy Cast. Hey, buddies, you thinking of starting your own podcast? Why not use Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast, and here's why. First off, it's free. Secondly, you have creation tools to record and edit right from your phone or computer. Third, Anchor distributes for you. You can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Fourth, make money with no minimum listenership. And finally, you have everything you need for a podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started.